Let me get started. We are kicking off a new summer series here. I love this graphic. Tim, this might be my favorite graphic you've ever done. Uh, it's a series called David and Bono, When the Word Sings. And this is a series that is about joy and pain. It's about wins and losses. It's about the soaring highs. It's about the crashing lows that encompass each of our lives. You're going to see it all played out over the summer. It's the common human experience. It's, it's the lives that each of us are living set to poetic word and music. And I, I, I'm pumped up about what we're going to walk through together as we study the hymnal of our lives, the, the song, in a sense, of our, our stories. Now, last summer, if you were, you were here at Menem last summer, we focused on the spiritual meaning in some of the most loved songs in our contemporary songbook. This summer, we're going to look at the spiritual meaning in some of the oldest songs in our ancient songbook. And that songbook is found smack dab in the middle of your Bibles. It is the longest single book in the Bible, and it is the Old Testament book that is most quoted in the New Testament. But it is, if we're really honest, it's a book that most of us, even those of us that are believers, most of us just kind of flip past. But my goal, my hope is by the end of the summer... This songbook of our lives, which contains songs that each of us should be singing, my goal is at the end of the summer, you will embrace it maybe like no other book in the scripture. Because in there are songs that you should know. Some of them you should know by heart. And they're all contained in this book called Psalms. It's Israel's ancient, God-breathed hymn book. Now, in order to take a fresh look at these millennia-old millennia old tunes, we're going to team up with King David, Israel's great king, who wrote a little more than half of the 150 Psalms contained in the book of Psalms. And we're going to, to match King David up with a couple of modern-day poets and songwriters. Eugene Peterson, you may have heard of. He is an 80-something-year-old pastor, biblical scholar, and author of more than 30 books, Again, the book on Psalms that he wrote is available for you out in the foyer if you don't want to pick one up. Some of those 30 books would occupy the Christian classic section of any library. His most famous work, perhaps the work of his lifetime, is called The Message Bible. Raise your hand if you've heard of The Message Bible. A lot of you. It is a contemporary translation uh, of the entire Bible. Now... That's, that's Eugene Peterson. Bono, most of you probably have heard of, um, which is actually kind of interesting. Bono is the lead singer of the legendary Irish uh, rock band U2. This is a very unlikely pairing. This is the true odd couple. Yet Fuller Seminary brought these two modern-day artists together in a project that we're going to look at over the entire summer to share their passion. Believe it or not, they each have a passion for the beauty and the best way to put it is maybe the gritty artistry of the songbook called Psalms. Here's what I would, I would like you to do. We, we set these summer series up because we know people are in and out. We, we've done the math. 35% of folks at Menem are away on any given weekend in summer. So we know it's hard to, to build on something, right? We, we do that in the fall through the, you know, into the summer. But in the summer, we kind of do sand standalone so that you can be in and out. And that's what we're doing. So each psalm will stand on its own. But the piece that will continue through the whole summer is Bono and Eugene Peterson reflecting on these psalms. This is an awesome way to invite a friend to church, can I tell you? 
um, because your friend has likely heard of the Psalms. He's probably heard of Psalm 23, right? And he's likely heard of Bono. And it's kind of a pretty interesting thing to invite your friend to, hey, my church is doing this thing where Bono is getting to, talking about the Psalms. So I, I want to put that out there for you, first of all. Just use it, think about using it as an invite. We're going to kick it off this morning um, with the single longest segment of the videos we'll show all summer. Most of the, the, the videos will be three to five minutes. It's a seven-minute video, um, and it starts the conversation rolling um, with these two poets and, and songwriters and Christian mystics as they talk about uh, the meaning of the Psalms, what it means to them. Check this out. Mr. Peterson, uh, Eugene, um, my name is Bono. I'm the singer with uh, the group U2 and wanted to sort of video message you my thanks and our thanks and the band for this remarkable work you've done. There's been some great translations, some very literary translations, but no translation that I've read that um, speaks to me in my own language. So I want to thank you for that. Uh, take a rest now, won't you? Bye. I never heard of Bono before. And then uh, one of my students um, showed up in class with a copy of the Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones? And in it, there was an interview with Bono in which he talked about me and the message and he used in some you know slangy language about who I was and uh, and I said who's Bono and they, they were dumbfounded I'd never heard of Bono <laughs> but that's not the circle that I really travel in very much so that's how I first heard about him And then people started bringing me his music, and I listened to his music, and I thought, I like this guy. And I, I was starting to, after a while, I started was start being quite pleased that he knew me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but the rest of the story is when the, he invited you to come and hang with them for a while, you turned him down. I was, I was pushing a deadline on the message. Uh, was finishing up the Old Testament at the time, and I really couldn't do it. I, I, uh, you may be the only person alive <laughs> who would turn down the opportunity just to make a deadline. I mean, come on. It's, it's Bono, for crying out loud. Dean, it was Isaiah. Yeah. <laughs> the Old Testament is a long long book, much longer than the New Testament. And it did take a long time and a lot of devotion uh, on both of our parts to ha have that happen. I have to say, in the last years, Eugene's writing has kept me as sane as, 
as this is, if you call it same, which you probably won't. Uh, Run with the horses. That's a powerful manual for me. And it includes a lot of incendiary ideas. You know, I, I hadn't really thought of, of Jeremiah as a performance artist. Why do we need art? Why do we need the lyric poetry of the Psalms? Why do we need art? Because the only way we can approach God is, if we're honest, through metaphor, through symbol. So art becomes essential, not decorative. I learned about art. I learned about the prophets. Uh, I learned about Jeremiah with that book, and that really changed me. And then uh, several years later, this was about four years ago, four or five years ago, Bonner would like me to come to Dallas to my Jan and me to come to Dallas and for a concert. We saw we went to the concert. He was very um, sensitive to us. It was we were really well cared for. Had really good seats, and uh, I'd never seen a mash pit before. That was my introduction to the mash pit. <laughs> Is it a pit? It's a mosh pit. Mosh pit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, you can see how uneducated I am in this world. And we had a, it was a three-hour lunch. And uh, we just had a lovely conversation. Uh, it was just very personal, relational. He didn't put me on any kind of a pedestal, and I didn't him. So we were very natural with each other. But I was just, uh, through that three-hour conversation, I was just really taken by the simplicity of his life, of, his, of who he was, who he is. And uh, there was no um, pretension to him. And uh, so I, at that point, I just, you know, felt like it was, he was a companion in the faith. best ones. And he, he sings a lot. I mean, he does this a lot. It's one of the psalms that reaches into the hurt and disappointment and uh, difficulty of being a human being. And uh, acknowledges that in, in a language that is immediately um, recognizable. You know, there's something that reaches into the heart of a person and the stuff we all feel many of us don't talk about. I waited and waited and waited for God. At last, he looked, finally he listened. And he lifted me out of the ditch. He pulled me from deep mud. He stood me up on a solid rock to make sure that I wouldn't slip. He taught me how to sing the latest God song. 
And so that's the beginning. We're going to watch a little bit of this every week. Uh, that's a, the longest piece of it we'll see. But uh, it is really... What I love about what I'm trying to do, guys, more than anything else, is to get you to see the Scripture as something more than an old book that's boring and needs to get the dust blown off it, but something that you could really, really get up every morning and sing these songs and, 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 and see your life in them. And so as we do that, I want to I do Psalm 40 this morning. We're going to start with that one. And I, and I like it because of its rawness. Um, and I think it'll give you a feel for, for why you should love the Psalms. We're not going to do the whole Psalm. Um, if we did, we'd wrestle with Psalm 40 all summer long. But I'm going to read it to you, understanding, here's what I want you to understand, that there was a time in our history as followers of God that the song was once sung together by everybody in the church. And so here it is. David starts to tell his story, recounting his walk and experience with God. Here's all of Psalm 40. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. And he turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth. It was a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts the Lord. Who doesn't look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods? Many, Lord my God. He goes into, he goes into a discussion about who God is with himself. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you've done, the things you planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you didn't desire, but my ears you've opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you didn't require. And then I said, here I am, I've come. It's, it's written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I don't seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I don't hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving health. I don't conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me, for troubles are without, without number surround me. My sins, they've overtaken me. I, I cannot see. They're more than the hairs on my head, and my heart, it fails within me. Be pleased to save me, O Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, uh aha, -huh, uh -huh, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. But as for me, I'm poor and I'm needy. May the Lord think of me. You're my help and my deliverer. You're my God. Don't delay. Now, I have a real problem with this psalm, if I'm honest. It starts in the first verse. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. I hate waiting. I mean, I really, really hate waiting. This was hammered home to me yesterday, like maybe no other time in my entire life. Uh, first, we're trying to clear customs. Now, if you know Betsy all she gets you to the airport when we run our Beyond the Walls trips. You could fly anywhere in the world, she gets you to the airport so early. You can't miss your plane. And so, we have plenty of time, and I'm standing in line to clear customs, 
and the guy in front of me is going slow. And I'm sitting there, and I'm getting upset because it's taking so long. First of all, you know you always blame the guy. What is this guy doing? And I'm going, then I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, it's not the guy. It's the person that's working. And, uh, and then I looked at my kids, and I said, why am I in such a hurry? I'm just literally going to move from here and go sit in there. But there's something in me, right? Like, I hate waiting. Now, it gets worse. Because then when we got inside the terminal, you know, I had the last seat on the plane right by the bathroom. Right? So, and I mean... Not to be a little unseemly, but, I mean, breathing urine in for five hours is less than what you want to do on the flight home from a mission trip. And so I'm thinking I'm going to get an early boarding because i got to put my bag in, right? So you know, I'm in the back of the plane. But I get zone four, right? So there's all these people that are lined up before me. So I said to the kids, let's go get in line so we can make sure we can get our bags at least put on the flight. So we go to get in line. Well, here comes this woman Right Now, we all know that you don't make the lines in the seating area. You make them out in the, the hall area. So I go in the full line four chute that's in the hall area. Well, here she comes through the seat area, and she kind of cuts me off. And the line starts forming behind her. So, like, I'm the outcast now, and I was there first. And now I'm, I feel it. You know, you feel it. And I'm going, okay, what's the big deal? It's not a big deal. But I feel it. And I'm, going, I'm saying to myself, and one of my kids even said to me, hey, the line formed over there. Like, you're going to have to cut these people off to get back in it. And I'm going, don't worry. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, I'm kind of adjusting my shoulder and my bag. I'm slowly moving the bag to make sure she knows I was there first. Now, this is a true story. I look back, and she is with her traveling companion, clearly has cancer. She has no hair. You know, she's got the whole radiation thing going. And momentarily, I thought to myself, you know, I probably should let them go first. But then something inside of me said, but they cut in front of me, right? Like, and I, you know, and so this was going on and going on and going on. Long story short, uh, well, actually, this is, this is the justice of God. Well, this is a true story. I didn't even think about it until just now because <laughs> it's going through my mind. And uh, so I'm thinking I got to cut this woman with cancer off so I can get on the plane. And uh, this is your pastor. And uh, I got to get home and preach tomorrow, you know. And so uh, as I'm thinking about this, all of a sudden the voice comes over the thing. Uh, Mr. Eastman, is there a John Eastman? Could you come to the desk? So I go over to the desk. I said, I'm John Eisman. Mr. Eastman, uh, you've, been you've been randomly selected for an additional security check. You're going to need to get out of the line. <laughs> and so we were the last on the plane, and all our bags got taken and board checked and all the rest. So. But I hate waiting. I mean, I don't know if you're like that. Like, there's something in me. I can't stand the thought. It doesn't matter. If I, I, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it's for. I, I hate waiting. It's something in the human condition. God understands this. The psalmist speaks of it. The biblical authors, so many of them, I can't tell you how many of these writers in the Bible talk about waiting. God understands that we don't like it. Now, to really appreciate the writing of King David, though, you have to understand the Hebrew phrase he uses to begin this song, this, I'll call it Song 40. It's a hotly debated uh, opening in academic circles. Uh, scholars have offered many different translations trying to accurately ref reflect what the Hebrew originally said. After all, David says, I'm mired in a pit, I'm stuck, uh, I'm stuck in a, I'm mired in a bog, I'm stuck in a desolate pit. Listen. Minutes tend to pass pretty slowly in custom lines, let alone in miry pits. And so this serene English translation, I waited patiently, that doesn't quite capture what the writer was trying to say. 
Other versions say this, I waited impatiently for the Lord. Another one says, waiting, I waited. Another says, urgently, I waited. Or as Eugene Peterson translated in the message you heard Bono read it, I waited and waited and waited for God. And at last, he looked. Finally, he listened. I hate waiting, but it is our human condition in interacting with God. He is often a God who refuses to perform on our timeline. Can I get an amen? He just doesn't do what I want him to do when I want him to do it. He's very frustrating that way. And see, God knows this about himself. This is why the scriptures are replete over and over. God tells us that his timeline is not our timeline. And so for for those of you in the room that want want to walk after God, you have to understand there's an ancient command and an understanding that following God requires often, even in our pain, even when you're stuck in mire and ditches, even in our tears, even when our prayers seem just and in line with his will, even when there are four things we really need, like a job or a spouse or or, or our health, or safety, or protection, or provision maybe for our children in peril. Even when our requests are really, really important and just and right, there is a biblical pattern and teaching that says, yeah, wait. Just wait. Ah, mama, I hate that. Now, It's not a wait like God is teasing us or trying to hold out on us or he enjoys watching us suffer from the pit. It's not waiting like you're just doing nothing and you're just simply enduring. The waiting, those that have followed after God for millennia, the waiting that's described in the scriptures is something akin to a wait with expectation and hope. Fundamental, at its root, Being able to wait, you have to trust in God's character and his goodness. If you don't, you're never going to be able to wait. And I'm going to show you what happens when you don't wait. You have to believe, guys, if you're waiting this morning on the Lord, you have to believe that he is love and he is good and that he does care. Waiting on the Lord is something godly people do. It's part of our journey. You can't escape it. It's about holding on tight, hoping with expectation and trust, knowing that the Lord is not making us wait just to see if we can take it. There are times when God delays, and, and, and there are times when I wonder why, even though this, what I'm asking for it seems so right, he seems so reluctant to intervene. This is why, can I tell you, this is why I love the Psalms. See, if you know me, I hate people that blow religious smoke, because it's not my experience in life that everything is just wine and roses. It's just not. This is why I love the Psalms. Psalm 69.3. How'd you like to sing this one in church together? I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. You guys would try to get me fired if I made you sing that. You know, it's in the Bible. But knowing the Lord... We have to begin to trust that he's going to come at the right moment. 
it necessitates this waiting process for us. You have to, there's got to be two key elements in this. The first is this, there's got to be, you've got to get to the point where you have complete dependence on him. You go to Guatemala City, you walk around the garbage dump, you'll get a sense for why there's joy amidst all of that pain because they have no other thing to depend on other than God. There is no social security. There is no 401k plan. There is no check coming in the mail. You have to have a willingness to allow them to decide the terms. Now, when you're in the bottom of the pit, or when you lose your job, or your house, or your child, or your spouse, this is one of the hardest things to do. There's a half-joking prayer you might have heard of. Lord, I need patience, and I need it right now. Because that's not far removed from the truth of how we often approach matters uh, of spiritual growth in our lives or, or what the Lord's will is in our lives. Here's a mistake, okay? You want to know what the common mistake is for those of us that, that need to wait on the Lord? Rather than trust and believe that God will come through, that His timing and answer is the right timing and the right answer, we often get tired of waiting and say like, you know, five minutes or so. You know, I prayed for that yesterday and... God doesn't seem to be doing anything. I guess I'm going to have to make it happen. And when you do that, now listen to me. When you do that, you miss out on the blessing of God and often just kind of make a mess of your life. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You didn't wait on the Lord. You gave it five minutes, a week, a month, and you said, I'm going to strike out on my own. I know I should wait. I know he's not the one. I know that's not the place. I know this isn't the thing, but it's good enough. I want it anyway. I'll take it now. If you know the Bible at all, you know there's a story in the first book of the Bible called Genesis about Abraham and Sarah. This is like the most famous picture of God's redemptive purpose in what seems like a painfully slow pace. Abraham is 75 years old, and God promises to make him a, of him a great generation that's going to bless all of the families on earth and give to his offspring the land flowing with milk and honey. There's a problem. Abraham has no offspring. And his wife, Sarah, to use an Old Testament, maybe politically incorrect phrase, is barren. So years pass, still no child. So first, Abraham tries to make his servant his heir. But God rejects that and says, no, that's not the plan. You'll have a son. And years pass, no son. And so Abraham decides, uh, I'm going to make it happen. Actually, his wife, Sarah, decides, I'm going to make it happen. She's desperate. She gives up on the waiting. She sends in her, her servant, uh, Hagar, to be a surrogate childbearer for her. That sounds uh, humanly, reasonable to the, humanly reasonable to the 86-year-old Abraham. But Abraham doesn't consult with God. And you know what happened, some of you that maybe know the scriptures a little bit, how big of a backfire that was. The ramifications of that, that echo in the human history book to this day. It would be 13 more years until the 99-year-old Abraham and the 89-year-old Sarah have this child of promise. But in the meantime, they made a mess of their lives and the world because they didn't want to wait. So what I want to show you here is how David, from the bottom of this pit in his life, how he deals with pain and unanswered prayer, how he deals with it so he doesn't fall into the temptation of trying to make it and happen his way. It's all shown in the first four verses. 
and then repeated in the psalm. It's a six-step pattern that you'll see in your life from this moment forward if you'll open your eyes to it. Here's the first three parts of it. The first three parts are, and we're familiar with this, pain, crying, and waiting. It's our common song. We've all sung it. Perhaps you find yourself singing it this morning, but I want you to notice something. When David writes this song, the first four verses aren't written in the present tense, but in the past. He doesn't say, I'm waiting for the Lord. He says, this is interesting now, he says, I waited. And he turned to me and he heard me and he lifted me. He set my feet. He gave me a firm place to stand. Now here's why. Here's why he starts with the past tense. Because David is in the middle of a current crisis. Where he says, right now, today, I have troubles without number that surround me. My sins have overtaken me. I cannot see. They're more than the hairs on my head. My heart fills within me. So what does he do? How does he comfort himself in the pain? How does one comfort themselves in pain while they wait for the hand of the Lord? This is what David does. He remembers his story of what God has done in his past and the greatness of who God is. And that keeps him from panic. It keeps him from fear. And most importantly, it keeps him from running ahead of God and making a mess out of his life. David reveals for you and me a key to waiting. Look in the rear view mirror of your lives and see how God has moved. How he has blessed you. Count them up for yourself. Remind yourself all the time we are to be a people of thanksgiving. Lord, let me look and see how you've come through for me in the past. I remember when that phone call came and I didn't expect it. Remember when that, that job came that, that I didn't expect? Uh, remember when, when the apology came that I never saw coming? Remember how blessed I am amongst all people that have ever lived? Look at where I live. Look at the time I live in. Pain, cries, waiting, and then here's the fourth part, deliverance. See, David looks back and he remembers in his life. Oh yeah, I remembered. He set my feet. Uh, I remember. I I was in this situation before. He reminds himself of the fourth pattern of of the life of those who chase after God in every age of God's historic deliverance. And so David sings his own story. There's pain. There's trouble. This is our story. There's pain and trouble in this life. Those of us who trust and believe in God. It is instinctive, even for people that would say they don't believe in God. It is instinctive to cry out to him in times of trouble. In fact, God commands us to cry out to him in times of trouble. And when you do, you know what you're greeted with often? Waiting. And waiting. And waiting. And waiting. And your history and mine, if we will but look, it shows of God's deliverance. It shows of his strength and his power and his love. This is one of the reasons we gather on Sunday mornings. This is one of the reasons you come to church, to be reminded of your story and reminded of God in the wait. You have to remind yourself of this in the pain and the loss of this life. Because if you don't, you're going to give up or you're going to strike out on your own and make a mess of your life. Here's how, how David recounted his past. He says, he lifted me out of the ditch. He pulled me from deep mud. He, he, he stood me up on a solid rock to make sure that I wouldn't slip. Now, I'm not a guy that blows spiritual smoke at you. This is not easy. 
Sure, it would be easy for me to kind of, you know, Joel Osteen it up here a little bit. God loves you, and he does. He's going to come through for you, and he will. Just hang in there and wait. It's all going to turn out okay. That husband, he's coming someday. But you might go, yeah, that's great. But I'm 45. I really wanted to have kids. Just wait? How long? My, fa- my family's, I met with a woman in the last couple of weeks. Her family is splintering apart because of immense pain in the family, a horrible loss. And she was crying on my shoulder saying, my family is broken and all I want is for them to come back together and I want it before I die. And I could blow smoke at her and go, and the Lord is going to answer that prayer. I don't know if the Lord is going to answer that prayer. I do know that in the kingdom there will be unification and forgiveness and grace and no more tears. But I can't tell you when God will come through for you. I I can tell you that he will. That's the truth of his story. If if our prayers and our hopes and our cries are in alignment with his will. My bills are over my head. I, I know. I saw the note in my husband's wallet. My, my youth, it's going away quickly, and so are my dreams and, and my strength. Well, the scripture says that those that wait on the Lord, their strength will be renewed. See, you're going to see later in the series, Bono and Peterson talk about how over the church over the last hundred years or so, we have lost our way in being honest and raw about the pain in this life and about waiting on God. Nobody teaches that this is critical in the life of those that follow God. You must learn to wait. Now remember, this was Israel's songbook. They used to gather and sing these songs to each other. You have to understand this. There's a reason why they gathered to sing these songs to each other. Imagine starting a church service with this. Psalm 13:1. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That ain't going to be on family friendly Star 99. How about this? Psalm 6:2. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Have you ever asked that question? You ever been with you? How long? Is it going to go on forever? How long? Now, I don't know if you ever heard this song that you two put together called 40, um, based off of Psalm 40. It's a great history to it. I don't have time to get into it. But throughout the 90s, when you two would close their concerts, uh, one of the, he really t- took the lyrics from, or the words from Psalm 40 and put them to music, but he mixed in some other psalms into it. So there's, there's a concept here of the Lord's deliverance and the Lord's waiting. He, he mixes, Bono mixes into it the ancient lament. How long do we have to sing this song? How long do we have to sing this song? You might remember um, in their hit Sunday, Bloody Sunday, it was a song inspired by the war in Northern Ireland. How long, how long must we, must we sing this song? That's from the Psalms. It's haunting. And so when the band in the 90s would leave the stage as they closed with Psalm 40, that would be their closing number. Imagine that. You two, maybe the most famous rock band in the world, would close every concert with a psalm. 
Now, most of the people had no idea they were singing Psalm 40. But they would leave the stadium, 60, 70, 80, 100,000 people. They would leave the stadium because you two would leave the building, and the stadium would continue to sing the psalm. I'm going to show it to you because it's haunting. How long to sing this song? Will you guys flip that up there? Check this out. This week, um, Potter's House is starting, it's our ministry partner in Guatemala, is starting a new ministry. Uh, they do their work in the Guatemala City garbage dump. They're starting a new ministry in rural poverty in a, in a town called Chiquimula. Uh, funny name for a town, not that great a town. Um, I, uh, they want, really wanted uh, me to see it, so uh, it's far away. They said it takes between four and six hours in one direction to get there. And so I said, that's great, you know, let's drive out one day and we'll come back the next day. I said, no, 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 that doesn't work for us. We're going to take a helicopter. Now, I don't like jet airplanes, uh, let alone helicopters, and I didn't really want my first helicopter ride to be in a third world Guatemalan countryside, um, but they peer pressured me into it, and uh, I do thank them for that because we got there in about 35 minutes versus um, I had another, uh, another guy from Philly that's on the board with us, and he, uh, he took the 12-hour road trip. Um, and so I took the 35-minute flight. Uh, Reed, who's part of our, our board of directors uh, in our nonprofit, came with me. I want to show you what we saw when we got out there to Chiquimula. Um, it, it, can we flip some of these up? It is a very barren, dry area. It is so hot, guys. That's the only water in town over there to the left. It's delivered once or twice a week. It's got worms in it when it comes out. This is the garbage dump in Chiquimula. It's about the size of my street. It is nowhere near the garbage dump in Guatemala City. We gave out some food to those that worked in the garbage dump, maybe 60, 70 people, probably most of which were women. She just put it on her head and walked back into this garbage dump. This is where they keep their things. Some of them actually live in those shanties. Gives you kind of the breath of what's there. It's just desolate and hot. There's no businesses. There's no, it's not like the city. There's, there's nothing there. It, it reminded me of Job just kind of sitting there. And I was working on this sermon all week. And you know what I thought as I walked along there? How long, Lord? How long are we going to sing the same song, Lord? Like these people, they're, they're so hurting. They're, they're at the bottom of the pit. How long, Lord? And then we went back to Potter's house and flew back, and they had a young man come to us that evening. His name was Tomas. And Tomas got up and shared his story. He said, uh, he said I was born unwanted. My, my mother and father were breaking up, and my mom got pregnant with me, and uh, she didn't want me, and my father didn't want me, and my father left, and my mother ignored me. Um, she wouldn't feed me. Uh, I was the outcast within the family. And if you know the culture down there, you could believe that this was true. Uh, he said, I, you know, I had to find food on my own. My brothers used to beat me because nobody cared. My mother didn't care. I, I went to school, but I was the poorest kid in the school. And they knew that I wasn't uh, loved at home. And so I got, began to get picked on at school. 
Uh, he said, the only, I, I never knew love. The only person that loved me in my whole life was my grandmother. Um, she was the only one that seemed to care about me, and she died. And he said he got to the point in his life, singing this same song of nobody loves me, nobody cares, uh, I'm picked on, I'm, uh, he, where he said he tried to kill himself. He, he took a bunch of poison. And it didn't work. And he stumbled upon some, uh, some uh, workers at Potter's house, and they came alongside him, and they shared the story of who Christ is. And, and he got some sponsors that began to come down to Guatemala and meet with him and, and pray with him and pray over him. And he found some friends that actually started to accept him in the program. In fact, he gave his testimony. When he gave his testimony, he actually gave a shout-out to my family because we sponsor one of his friends. And he said, because you sponsored my friend, we together stayed in school. We didn't quit. And then his mom, because he was going to Potter's house, she started going to parenting classes and she started to change the way she thought and she started to believe in God and she started to realize that, that what she had done to her son and, and she started to love him. And then he, then he realized that his sponsors had become like his grandparents and, and he had gone from losing one grandparent to gaining two grand, grandparents. And he went into the countryside and found out where his father lived and, and reconciled with his father. And he graduated high school and he, he stood before us and this kid was just bawling crying while he was telling this story. He st and so were we. Um, and then he stood at the end and he said, I'm the first person in my family that's ever going to college. And my mom and my dad, now all they do is tell me how proud they are of me. And so Courtney served with him in VBC every day and he, he led dancing with Courtney. He's, he's a, he's a, you've seen me, he's a kind of a gangly kid and the videos of him are funny and uh, Courtney said, you know, I, I saw him dancing. I got, got to go over there one day, and him and Courtney were up there dancing. You know, Courtney, she's got eight, ten years of dance from being a little girl. You know, she looks okay up there, and he looks like me dancing up there, actually. Um, and uh, she said he came on Friday, and he said, you know, he said, these stories, these songs are so old. I'm so, I'm I'm so tired of these songs. This is a true story, right, Court? He goes, can we play some new songs? I don't want to sing these songs anymore. I want to I sing a new song. See, that's the last part of your story. There's pain and there's crying and there's waiting and then there's deliverance. And here's the story. The scriptures say that God gives you a new song. You see, Tomas, he sings a new song. Tomas, when you see him, he can't help but contain it. Is everything perfect in his life? No. Do you know where he woke up this morning? In a garbage dump. But he is there this morning and he's singing a new song because he can look in his rearview mirror and in the midst of the garbage, he says, look what the Lord has done in my life. I can trust him. He can be believed in. Uh, in the midst of the garbage, I can wait. I can wait because I know who he is, how big he is, how wonderful he is, how great he is, what he's done. And he sings. Can I ask you a question? Here's just a question I asked the group the other night. When is the last time you sang a new song? I mean, do you just keep singing the same song in your life? Do you know the dangers of getting stuck in a rut and uh, living out the same old song in your life, falling back into the same old thought patterns of doubt or distrust, negative beliefs, cynicism, criticism, anger, mistrust, rage, because these songs get stuck in your head. Why? Why am I so, why, oh, gosh, I'm so ugly. No one will ever love me. Why? You know a song, I, could, I sing it all the time. Why can't anything ever go my way? Why does everything have to be so difficult? 
for, other, for others in the room. I know the voice in your head. I know the song that you sing to yourself. Why? I, oh, well, I'm so stupid. I'm never going to get the job. I'm never going to get the girl. I'm never going to get the guy. The prognosis will never be right. The notice will never come in. I just have to, here's the song we sing all the time. I just have to rely on me. I just have to rely on me. Nobody's here for me. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares. I have to believe in me. I have to hope in me. I have to trust in my 401k. As far as God, as far as my relationship with God, how often do we fall into the thought patterns? I hope I've been good enough. I hope I've given enough. I hope I've sacrificed enough so that God will accept me. It's an old song. Now, I want to show you what the problem with this is. Over and over, Scripture commands one thing of the people of God. Psalm 43, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to God. Psalm 96, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Psalm 33, 3, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout, shout for joy. Psalm 98, 1, sing to the Lord a new song, for he's done marvelous things. How about this one? There's a couple of these in Revelation. What's going to happen when we get before the throne in the life to come? And they sang a new song before the throne. I could go on and on. I had the group on the top of the Guatemala garbage dump this week on the hillside there. I had them read out over and over the commands that in this life and the life to come, we're to sing new songs about what, what God has done. And in the pain and in the crying and the waiting, as we look back and we see his power and protection and hand of deliverance, Guys, the church is to be a people who sing to God and one another new songs. Do you know how many times, here's a question for you, do you know how many times in the Bible it says to bring to God an old familiar song? None. None. And so, when I walk through Chikimula, the song has to move from how long, how long to, oh my gosh, do you remember what you did in Thomas's life? You know, there's 250 houses in the Guatemala garbage, city garbage dump. You know many, how many there were when we went there 13 years ago? None. Do you know how many meals have been fed? Do you know how many children have gone through high school? Do you know how many kids have gone to college in the U.S.? i got to stop singing the same song of lament and start singing a new song of praise to God and trust. Here's the last reason why, and the band can come up. Here's why, because this is the last piece Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Is it possible, church at Menham Hills, that the reason over 200 churches in America close their door every week is the people who once occupied them never learned a new song? They sang songs of cynicism and distrust and gossip. They allowed their story to become one that ended in step three. They felt pain, they cried out, but in the waiting they grew weary and tired and they gave in or they gave up or maybe worse yet, they just did it on their own and they kept singing the same old song. I know life hurts. I just saw it. I feel it. But it's not just in Guatemala or Syria or Somalia. In our own lives, I've tasted it. Nobody gets out of here without a walk in the season of pain or loss or worry. It is okay to lament. It is biblical to cry out, how long, O Lord? But Mendham, can I ask you that from this day forward, could we be a group of friends? Could we be a countercultural community who no matter what may come in our individual lives or in our lives as a church, could we look back and together go, Dell, you remember what he did? You remember how he came through before, right? You know, let me show you how big and powerful and strong he is. 
so that we could wait together, not just longingly, but expectantly, and encourage each other to do it. That is why we sing together. People say to me, why do you sing so much? That's why. And as we do, as you walk out of here this morning, can we sing a new song so that others might hear and see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him? Let's do it together.